New York City is rich with history, a lot of which is well-documented in books and museums. But when Hugh Ryan went on the hunt to find out about Brooklyn's queer history, he struggled. So he took it upon himself to uncover that past. The result? His book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. Hugh Ryan is with me now in the studio. Hugh, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, George. I'm really excited. So your book explores more than 100 years of queer history in Brooklyn. You take us from the 1850s to the 1960s. What inspired your interest in this topic? A lot of things, but mostly my own ignorance, to be honest. I was living in Brooklyn. I lived there for many years. And one day I was working on an exhibition of queer history. And I did these shows around the country that were based in local queer history. And when I decided to do one in Brooklyn... I realized that I didn't know anything about Brooklyn's queer history. And it was kind of this stunning moment where I thought to myself, how is this possible? I was a women and gender studies major in college. I'd lived in Brooklyn for over a decade at that point, and I just didn't know anything. So I did what I always do in that situation. I went to the library to get a book, and there was no book. And that was when I I was really shocked. I thought my own ignorance was one thing, but the fact that there wasn't already a book really surprised me. And I, so I, I was left with two options. Either, you know, there, there was a history that was just not known or not collected, or queer people were like vampires and they couldn't cross running <laughs> water and we were all stuck in Greenwich Village. And so that's how I started my book. Why do you think it is that much of this history hasn't been told? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. This particular set of histories are both uh, hidden because they're about queer people, which, you know, until very recently, there just wasn't a lot, particularly popular history. There was some academic history and a lot of history passed down inside the community, but kind of popular history that you might learn in schools or books or movies, just really rare. And then not a lot of people until recently have looked at Brooklyn as a space that you might want to investigate. I mean, Brooklyn is hot right now, but going back historically, I grew up outside the city. My family's from the Bronx and from Manhattan. And the idea that you would go to Brooklyn was almost a joke. Brooklyn was a place you came from. It wasn't a place you went to. Let's talk a minute about the word queer. You used the word queer, not the word gay. Was that a conscious decision? It was. It was. Particularly because, like you said, I'm covering over 100 years. And when you go back further into the Victorian era, their ideas about gender and sexuality were very different from ours. And ideas like gay and lesbian... It wouldn't have made a ton of sense to them. To some people, they might have. But in general, that wasn't definitely the words people were using. Those words didn't even exist or mean those things. And so I wanted to avoid projecting our modern ideas backwards so that as much as possible, we could encounter the figures I was talking about on their own terms through the ways they would have understood themselves. Because what I think is really exciting about looking at history is all the ways it's different from the present. Because that inspires us to believe that the future could be even more different. You know, I think like a lot of people who are interested in queer history, I came to it because I myself am queer and I didn't see myself in history or even in the present growing up in the 80s. And so I came looking for a mirror and I found something much more exciting, which was a window. I began to see that there were all of these different ways to express one's sexuality, one's gender identity, and that that gave me hope that in the future things could be completely radically different from how I had grown up. So how different was being queer in the 1850s compared to today? (laughs) Well, it was different in a lot of ways and a lot of different experiences. One of the things I really try to highlight in the book is that in the 1800s, the 19th century, for a lot of people, the idea of queerness wasn't this idea of sexuality that we think of today. It was kind of an overlapping group of ideas combining what we would think of as being gay or lesbian, being intersex, and being transgender into a category that was called inversion, a sexual invert. 
And so this was a, a an idea of queerness that rested on your body, and it was queerness as part of your gender identity. So your sexuality, who you slept with, was one part of your ability to live up to a proper gender identity, but how you dressed was another part, and how you comported yourself and the kind of relationships you had. And so long as you kind of kept enough of those pieces looking the right way, some kinds of queerness, particularly uh, sexual expression between two people of the same gender, if they were, you know, upper class and properly gendered otherwise, could kind of slide past the censors. You know, <laughs> you could it could happen and it did happen very frequently. But it was a very different idea of what it meant to be queer. It was very much about the body and the expression of gender. When did the idea of what we know as what it means to be queer today come into play? It came to play in small pockets at a lot of different times. That's one of the reasons I start my book with Walt Whitman is that he is clearly trying to think through what it means to be what we would call a gay man. He's coming up with words for it. He's coming up with symbols for it. He's directing his poetry to other men. I think the way he phrases it is them who are capable of loving as I myself am capable of loving. So clearly he's looking for something. But when the concept really becomes one that people are familiar with. I, I would put that at the late 1800s. Uh, it emerges mostly in Europe, in Germany, Magnus Hirschfeld, and comes over to the U.S. By the early 1900s, we've got American scientists, uh, sexologists, many of whom were into eugenics, you know, the science of eugenics, which said it's all about inheritance and kind of breeding the right people. Uh, it's very disturbing science. But those folks in the early 1900s begin to promote these ideas of homosexuality, transsexuality. They're not always using these words, but they're teasing out these identities as separate things. And then particularly World War One and World War Two. Those mass mobilizations and the time period where they happen is when those ideas spread out among the public really far. Let's talk a little bit more about Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman kept detailed lists of the names and characteristics of many of the men that he had relationships with. Right. And relationships of all kinds. The thing about these lists, which he kept in his diaries for pages upon pages, and they're very short lists. They'll say things like Ike, Fifth Avenue, worked on the fire department, or Jonathan Smith slept with me. We just get these tiny little notes, but it's clear that he was meeting a ton of men, that these men were important to him, that he was spending time with them, that some of them were receptive to his emotional and probably sexual advances. They're spending time with him. You know, he talks about uh, some of them have syphilis and he describes their bodies in very elaborate ways. And, and these lists, I think, show that he is looking for something and that he is finding it. And how is that reflected in his work, the work that we know? So much of his work, if you read it, and understand what he's truly saying is about sex. I mean, he even says this very clearly in his own poetry and to his amanuensis, Horace Traubel, that, that sex is at the root of his poetry. Brooklyn was very white between the end of slavery and the 1940s. How does that factor into the understanding of the borough's queer history? In a bunch of different ways. That was actually one of the biggest surprises for me in doing this work. Very early on, I was looking at just sort of the, the body of things to look through, you know, looking for famous people whose lives I might be able to look into archives. And, and I was like, wow, all these people are white. You know, is it just that only white people's histories have been preserved, which is often the case? Or is it something else? And I started to look at the demographics and I saw that Brooklyn was 
often 98, 99% white. And so I realized in that moment that not only was I going to have to dig all the harder to find the stories of queer people of color, because of course there were queer people of color in Brooklyn and, and they're in my book, but also that I was going to have to really understand how those racial dynamics built the world of Brooklyn, how they were enforced, so how white people kept people of color out, and also how they changed things like labor and where you might be able to live and where you might be able to associate with people and what bars were like in these times of incredible segregation. Because all of those factors are going to be really different than depending on your race. And particularly when I think about modern readers who might be encountering my work, I know that I get frustrated when I read a piece of history and it doesn't discuss queer people at all because it's hard for me to then project myself backwards and ask myself, who might I have been in this time? And I felt that if I didn't attend to those differences, then either I needed to write that I was writing a book of white history or I was just going to write bad history. You say in the book that queer life in Brooklyn began by the water and spread outward. Why was the waterfront so central to queer life? Well... It was where Brooklyn itself starts, right? So we have these bunch, I think it's like six small towns that eventually comprise Brooklyn. But the reason that they become a city of such importance is shipping and transportation. And the waterway is where that is centered. So areas like Dumbo and Red Hook and downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights and Coney Island, they're places where Brooklyn builds up first. So they've got some of the oldest history and the densest history. And there are also places where there are jobs, and this is central, jobs that queer people can have. Those jobs were often low-paying, they were frequently dangerous, sometimes they were illegal, but they were there, and they allowed people to build lives for themselves and with each other in ways that they couldn't have done in smaller towns, perhaps, where they were watched more closely, or in times when there weren't jobs that allowed you to build a life away from the nuclear family. And those jobs in Brooklyn, the ones that I really chronicle closely that come up again and again in my research, were sailors, sex workers, artists, entertainers, and female factory workers, particularly during the wars, but at all times. So all of those jobs really concentrate around the waterfront. And then along with those jobs, you get that kind of industrial density. You get those anonymous spaces, right? Think about uh, areas that are full of shipping and factories and those side streets and alleys that maybe aren't policed. Maybe they don't have lighting. Maybe at night, that part of the town shuts down a little bit. And the streets are flooded with sailors who are looking for entertainment because they're on leave or they're looking for a place to be because they were on a ship that they can no longer be on anymore. And so you've got these really interesting dynamics. Those sailors are coming from all around the world. They've seen different things. And the average Brooklynite, therefore, has a little more of that kind of cultural intermingling, that little un more understanding that maybe the ways that they grew up with are not the only ways of being or loving or living in this city. Quite a bit of your book focuses on 19th century theatrical culture, including male and female impersonators. Who were among the most interesting? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, the one that was sort of most exciting or interesting for me as a historian was the one whose story was hardest to find, and that's Florence Hines. Florence Hines in the late 1800s was said to be the highest paid female performer of color on the entire vaudeville circuit. You can find her all around the country. She re receives these glowing reviews. She was a male impersonator. She was a singer. She was a dancer. 
And in particular, what makes Florence Hines so famous is that she was the MC or the central interlocutor for a show called The Creole Show. And The Creole Show is this really important, although mostly forgotten, milestone in American theater history because it's the first moment where one of those uh, minstrel shows that were really popular in the 19th century, usually they would show black performers as kind of simpletons on the plantation just doing what comes naturally. They weren't presenting them as artists. They weren't presenting them as musicians. They weren't presenting them as people who invested their lives in a skill. They were just naturally talented. And the Creole show doesn't do that. The Creole show presents 16 women of color as artists, as performers. And Florence Hines, as the MC in that show, is one of the first, perhaps the first woman to play that central interlocutor role, which is the most important role in one of these minstrel shows. And she does it as a male impersonator. And the Creole show tours America for five years. It's everywhere. And Florence Hines is at the forefront of it. She is this incredible performer. We know from some of the press that she received during this that there were intimations that she had a relationship with another one of the people in the show, a woman named Marie Roberts, with whom she did a duet act. And Florence is everywhere in the late 1800s. Early 1900s, she disappears. And this is really frustrating. She just disappears from the records entirely. Now, already to find a lot of information about her I had to look outside of normal sources that talk about drag and vaudeville because a lot of them only talk about white performers. So even though she was incredibly famous, I couldn't find a photo of her. The white performers who were of an equal caliber, sort of at the same professional level at the same time, you can find all kinds of promotional materials about them. But she was this kind of mystery. And eventually I was able to find, by digging into the records of a black newspaper from Chicago, I think it was the Chicago Freedman, two different versions of what happened to her. One said that when Prohibition started, she gave up the male impersonation and became a preacher and continued as a preacher for many years. Another one said she was permanently injured in 1904 and left performing entirely. Either way, in the early 1920s, a woman writes into the newspaper and says she was my mother and she's passed on. That's it. That's mm. all I could find about her story. She was so important and her life touched so many people. And yet, to be only able to find these tiny pieces and to really see that next to a performer like Ella Wesner, who is an incredibly important white drag king of the same time, who even performed some of the same songs in the same venues. You look for information about her and it's it's everywhere, right? Mm. She was paid by cigarettes and champagne companies to hawk their uh, wares from the stage. They made promotional materials. You can find trading cards with her face on them. But Florence Hines doesn't get the same treatment. What about Josie Mansfield, who has a connection to Ella Wessner, right? Right. Josie was an actress uh, who was kind of more known at the time for her performances off the stage, let's say. She was uh, an infamous kind of socialite. She was very beautiful. She had all of these rich and famous lovers. There was this famous case where one of her lovers shot and killed another one in public uh, for her affection. And while that murder case was being investigated... Josie starts following Ella Wesner all around New York and the Northeast region. And she eventually, they form a really close relationship. And the papers chronicle this, and they're, they're never quite sure what to make of it, right? They're, it's a little weird. They don't want to pretend like it's important. They say that in a number of articles. We're, this, we're not talking about this because it's important. We're just talking about it because people want to know. Uh, and sometimes they call it sinister, and sometimes they call it unnatural, and sometimes they just refer to it as an attachment. And the two women ended up moving to Paris. They run a salon there for uh, over a year, maybe even two years. They come back, and while there was some upset 
in the venues over the, that they were supposed to perform in over them leaving. It was mostly about canceling the tour dates, not because they were lesbians or not necessarily lesbians, but they were women in a relationship with one another. The interesting part is that Josie's very femme presenting and Ella, of course, is a drag king and is not femme presenting. And although from the records, it seems as though Josie is the one who is pursuing Ella, the newspaper reports tend to write about it the other way around. They write that Ella Wesner is pursuing or enchanting or putting Josie Mansfield under a spell. Again, going back to that idea that at this time, your queerness really was rested on visible gender signifiers. And so it was really hard for people to wrap their head around this idea that Josie Mansfield was a woman who gave this very, you know, proper gender presentation who was pursuing a person like Ella Wesner. At best, they could kind of think of her as what they would call an acquired invert, which meant that they'd spent a little too much time around a real invert and it kind of screwed their minds up and now they were doing weird things. You know, that that's how they figured those people out. Another character in your book is Mabel Hampton, an iconic jazz singer and dancer. Mabel is perhaps my favorite person in the entire book. And I think that's because I'm prejudiced a little bit because of the kinds of sources that you have. Mabel starts dancing at Coney Island in 1920. And she says that's where she learned the word lesbian. And she has this incredible life in New York City. Her entire life, she is out. She is fantastic. She's at the heart of the Harlem Renaissance. She's involved with World War II. In 1984, she's a grand marshal for the New York City Pride Parade. And she is this incredible figure. And she was really heavily involved with the lesbian in Herstory Archives. She's very close with Joan Nessel, one of the founders, and her effects are all at the Herstory Archives, along with hours upon hours of oral histories with her. And so I got to actually listen to her voice, and that just, it changes the experience of doing history. I'll, I'll say to anyone listening right now, if you love radio shows, if you love podcasts, look up oral histories. It's a different way of getting that kind of information. It's slower, and they meander, but you hear the actual voice and diction of history, and it it's, I think, impossible not to be affected by it. And Mabel is just this profoundly funny, smart, tough woman. And it's incredible to listen to her stories because they're also so unexpected. You know, she gives us this insight into these really large, overlapping, parallel worlds of white lesbians and lesbians of color. And she kind of accesses both of them in Harlem, in Coney Island, in Jersey City, in Greenwich Village. She's just incredible. What's interesting about Coney Island's queer history specifically? Ooh, so much. I, I think that Coney Island as a region has some of the most interesting and densest queer history that you'll find in all of Brooklyn. Particularly starting in the late 1800s, you get a lot of performers who perform around gender. So bearded ladies who still perform there, drag kings, drag queens, uh, but also more esoteric acts like half and halves, which were said to be half man, half woman. Some of those people were intersex. Many of them were... Um, People whose gender identities were already so unexpected for the way that we would think of them that people assumed they were also intersex or hermaphroditic, as the term went at the time. So you already have all of this going on. And then as the Victorian era breaks down, Coney Island becomes the place where dating happens, right? So dating goes from being this kind of like very more formal courtship uh, to a thing that you do with men and women in big groups for fun. And it becomes kind of a sexual pleasure ground 
that's acceptable. You could go there, you know, with a group of girls or a group of guys and then maybe run into each other and, you know, ride a tunnel of love together. So it's got this sexual nature to it. And then you have the beach and the boardwalk and you've got under the boardwalk where you'd go after you'd rent your bathing suit. And those were these sort of places where there's a lot of nudity and men together and women together. You have over 30 bathhouses that were running there at the same time, some of which had really strong gay clientels. You had all of these bump and grind shows and burlesque shows, many of which employed queer women, uh, both on the stage and, of course, off the stage. And there are records of all of this. Uh, beauty pageant in 1929, an all-male beauty pageant where all the contestants are gay, and some of them show up in drag. You know, And no one's exactly organizing it to be gay, but it just keeps happening over and over and over again. So Coney Island, you find every kind of queer gender and sexuality that you can imagine all the way up until about the 1950s, uh, when Coney Island and the whole waterfront is really on a, a skid downward that Robert Moses accelerates. Robert Moses actually had an impact on queer life, huh? Yeah, yeah, he really did because he wanted to kind of redesign the city. He saw it as a place that would be, you know, kind of this urban core, Manhattan, connected to these far-flung suburbs with a lot of money and a lot of white people moving in between them. And what he needed to do was put roads that would make that happen. And those roads smashed all through Brooklyn. If you look at a modern map of Brooklyn, you'll notice that the waterfront is entirely cut off from the rest of the city. And the roads that cut it off were all built by Robert Moses. And he went after Coney Island, too. He really tried to destroy the amusements. He didn't like them. He thought it was tawdry. He just didn't like places where working class people gathered. And queer people were often poor. And so those places were full of queer people. So Coney Island, Sand Street, which was the strip of sailor bars and tattoo parlors that kind of connected downtown Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Navy Yard. He puts uh, NYCHA housing there. Uh, he puts NYCHA housing at Coney Island. He really wanted to put it where he already thought there were poor people. And he had, you know, would say that, of course, the people who lived in those neighborhoods will have probably have first choice of those buildings. They never did. And even if they did, it was years before they could move back into them. And then eventually NYCHA housing establishes these moral codes that basically made it impossible. Though they don't say anything about queer people, they basically make it impossible for queer people to live in these buildings. And a lot of that can be traced back to Robert Moses. Speaking of moral codes, at the start of the 20th century, a self-appointed moral society arose in New York. It was called the Committee of 14. What was the Committee of 14's mission? I joke that they're a bunch of supervillains because that's what it sounds like to me. They just sound like a, a shadowy organization. <laughs> uh, and they kind of were. But <laughs> I don't think they saw themselves that way. They were really an anti-prostitution society. And they were founded in response to a law called Rain's Law. And Rain's Laws made it illegal for bars to serve alcohol on Sundays. But what it did was it cut out an exemption for hotels with, I think it was like more than 10 rooms or more than 12 rooms, basically because they wanted upper class people to be able to drink and poor people to not drink. And that situation lasts for a couple of years before every saloon owner in Brooklyn and, and Manhattan gets this idea of, well, I'll just cut up my rooms into tiny rentable rooms and suddenly I'm a hotel and then I can get around this. And that opens up all other kinds of situations in those bars, because now you've got bars that are operating a little bit illegally, a little bit shadily, full of small private spaces that you can rent, some by the hour, some by the night. And so those get filled very quickly with sex work, uh, with 
non-monetary sex, but that is not uh, procreative, let's say, or not above board, with gay sex, with uh, adultery. And the Committee of 14 is out to put a stop to all of that. Originally, they start off because they're looking at prostitution. But within a few years, they start to realize that there's much more going on inside these bar spaces than they had realized. And they pay hundreds of informers to go into, like, every bar in New York City. They had borough branches in Brooklyn. They had them in the Bronx. I think they might have had one in Queens. And they create these reams of notes, which they then share with the police to get these places closed down. And often what they would do is they would go straight to the brewers who supplied these places with alcohol and say to them, there's immoral stuff going on there. We can't shut it down legally. The laws don't exist yet for which to do that. But we are the richest people in you know the city. And either you do what we say and stop serving this bar or we're going to come down on you. And a lot of people went along with that. So they were really this really powerful force. And for a queer historian, they're incredibly useful because although their records are really biased, they're very thorough. And if you want to find out, you know, which of the 150 unnamed bars that existed in Brooklyn in 1907 had queer people in it, their notes are very, very helpful. You say in the book that if the 19th century was about noticing queer people, the 20th century would be about controlling them. Is that part of the controlling them? Oh, absolutely. And and they're part of a, a tightening network. So you've got moral reformers, you've got doctors, and you've got lawmakers. And those three groups are all sort of looking at queer people from different directions in the early 1900s. And they're kind of building the regimes of control that will eventually get used against queer people more and more as time goes on. In the 19th century, most of what I talk about is individual queer people finding each other, realizing they're not alone, realizing this is an identity, and a broader straight world kind of finding out about that through those performers that we talked about earlier, and also through the newspapers that were covering those performers. So that's kind of how you learned about queerness. By the early 20th century, there was kind of enough knowledge about it, generalized knowledge, that people started to be asking questions about, you know, what kind of laws should we build around this? Who are these people? Are they wrong? Are they bad? Is it catching? Uh, and that grows and grows up until we get to the end of World War II. And that really ushers in this period of intense homophobia. That's what I grew up thinking was everything before the present moment. But really, it's it's like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. What would you say is the story in the book that's getting the most reaction that surprises people most? You know, the historical drag kings, it's it's really hard for people to let go of that. And I understand why. I mean, it's shocking. One, drag kings are not really discussed even today. I think they get very little credit or acclaim, even though there are some incredible people out there. Moby Dick, uh, Diane Tor, you know, one of the leading drag kings who only died very recently. But you don't hear Murray Hill in New York, obviously. We don't hear a lot about those people. And then to imagine that they existed in the late 1800s and not only existed, but they were everywhere. They were incredibly popular that you could see a dozen different drag kings or queens in Brooklyn over the course of a year pretty easily. That blows people's minds. Your book ends in 1966. Why stop in 1966? A bunch of different reasons. I was trying to chart, as I said, this waterfront communities that rise and fall with the waterfront. And after World War II, you really see the waterfront hitting its skids. So you've got Robert Moses who's eating away at it, but you've also got changes in shipping that are happening. The St. Lawrence Seaway opens up, and that changes everything. Brooklyn is no longer as important a destination. You've got container shipping now, which needs much bigger spaces. So all of that's moving to New Jersey. So the waterfront is closing down in a lot of different ways. But 1966 is the year where the Brooklyn Navy Yard finally shuts down, and that's a, a real nail in the coffin of the waterfront. 
different. Uh, all of the neighborhoods have changed by that point. And a lot of the discussion of queerness in different neighborhoods has shut off by that point. So Brooklyn Heights, you see a lot of discussion of queer people in the community in the Brooklyn Heights press in the early 60s. I know there are bars there and those bars continue, but the public discussion of it sort of hides away. Coney Island, by the mid 50s, gays and lesbians are saying it's not safe for us to go there anymore, even though there's been this like hundred year of history behind it. And so 66, I also liked the way that interplayed with Stonewall. So it's all of this is shut down, but it's just a couple years before all of this blossoming that happens in Manhattan. And one of the arguments that I sort of make implicitly in the book is that we can trace some of the roots of Stonewall, obviously nowhere near all of them, to what is happening in these other spaces, that all of these other spaces are closing down, these more mixed spaces, these further flung spaces. And it's forcing more and more people, starting in the 40s, into the area of Greenwich Village, which has like the oldest and sort of strongest queer history in possibly the country, but definitely in New York. And that that density, it becomes denser and denser, and the people there become more policed and more harassed. Eventually, that's going to lead to Stonewall. There's an explosion that is building. And part of the pressure comes from the shutdown of all the stuff that I've been tracing in Brooklyn. So 66 felt like a good place to end for both those reasons. Have you received any flack for the title when Brooklyn was queer from people who say, (laughs) you know what, Brooklyn is still queer? Yes. And I 100 percent agree with them. You know, I often preface any talk about the book by saying Brooklyn is actually now queerer than it has ever been. And it is a queerness that is more interesting, more diverse, more powerful. But that I titled the book that way because I grew up during a time where you would never think about going to Brooklyn for a particularly queer experience. But in my research, I saw that in the 1920s and 30s, people did. They came on slumming tours from Manhattan the same way that they might have gone to Harlem for looking for kinds of queer experiences. They went to Coney Island knowing what they would find. And Brooklyn, parts of Brooklyn, had a queer reputation. And I think that's growing again now. And I think that is so exciting. And so I I often say, I am telling a very specific story, but there are so much more to Brooklyn's queer history. If you were to establish a walking tour of Brooklyn's queer history based in your book, what would you say would be the top two sites? Must visits. I mean, the hard part is that so much of the actual physical world has changed or disappeared. And so it's a little hard. To, people often want me to do walking tours. And I say it's a walking tour of parking lots and on-ramps. It's, it's not quite as fun as you might imagine. Uh, I do say that everyone should go to Coney Island. If you have never been, go. It is an amazing, magical place. It is still magical. The other place, and this is not a history walking tour in the way I think you might have been asking, but I'm going to plug it anyways, is the Lesbian History Archives. They are an incredible institution that has been doing super important work for decades. They are in a wonderful building in Brooklyn. You can go in, you can do research. They're incredible folks. They have history that is kept nowhere else. And I really, I think that everyone who's ever lived in Brooklyn should visit them at some point. The book is When Brooklyn Was Queer. Hugh Ryan, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 